Welcome to the Patmos Podcast. I'm Cooper Wagner, and I'm often joined by my partner, Cole Jones. Here at Patmos, we're on a mission to be the healthiest investment firm in the world. Part of how we plan on doing that is by learning from men who've gone before us in life and business. So I hope you enjoy these conversations, and thanks for listening in. If you find them helpful, we would love to hear from you. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, or just shoot us an email, which can be found on our website at patmoscp.com. All right. Well, today we are joined by our friend Aaron Graff. Aaron, thank you for jumping on with us today and driving north of 635, <laughs> getting out of the bubble and, uh, and and coming up here to spend some time with us. We're really excited. Aaron um, is the vice chairman and founder of Triumph Bank and um, as we will get into, has done a lot there and the growth and expansion that Triumph has had you know, over the past is it 15 years, close to. Yeah, it was uh, just over 15 years. Okay. It's hard to believe. Hard to believe. (laughs) You were like in middle school. (laughs) Let's see. Maybe elementary school. I would have been been 11. I used to be the young guy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, you know, and you've done a lot more and are a a faithful person in the Dallas community that serves in a lot of ways. And so would love to hear some about that as well as we get into it. But... um, would love to just get just to get us going I, to um, anyone listening. Aaron has been on a podcast with Chris Powers called The Fort, and they did a really good job of unpacking a lot of the Triumph story and how you got started. But also unavoidable to not talk about it and hear you know just do an intro here of um, you know how you got to where you are today, how you got into banking, um, and then you know we'll jump into more specific questions from there. Sure. Um, well, I think it, it it probably finds its roots. I grew up in western Oklahoma, a town called Clinton, about 8,500 people. My dad was a, a lawyer in town and also was a rancher. And during the crisis, which I was too young to remember, and we've had a few crises since then, but in the SNL crisis in the mid-80s and late-80s, he and a partner invested in a very small bank. And he never worked at the bank Um, but he was an investor and a controlling shareholder and they have run that bank since that time serving that local community very slow growth healthy and and I think I knew all of that was happening but I really wasn't paying attention I mean it was where we banked and I worked as a teller there maybe for a few days in the summer but really didn't have an interest in it um, specifically so I went to Baylor University. I had a pipe dream of playing baseball in college. I was absolutely not good enough. It did not, it didn't take but two year JUCO baseball job. Well, it took me ten seconds on Baylor's campus <laughs> to figure out I was not good enough. But I did like it um, for a variety of other aspects, namely which no one from Clinton had ever been there, and I, I don't know. I just felt you know, this was the days before we were all always connected all the time, and so right. it felt like I was going and doing something. And so at Baylor, I was a liberal arts major. University scholars was what it, the program was called, which essentially means you're unemployable unless you go to <laughs> grad school. But along the way, I was always an entrepreneur, like buying and I bought and sold things on this new company, you know, this new website called eBay. And, um, you know, I had always just had a bent towards that. I didn't know what really the word meant. I don't think I gave it a lot of thought. So go to Baylor, go to Baylor Law School. It wasn't that I was passionate about the law either, but like I said, I was somewhat unemployable with this lovely liberal arts degree. 
So I went to Baylor Law School and then went to work for a big law firm in downtown Dallas and uh, Fulbright and Jaworski. Now it's Norton Rose Fulbright. Great firm, great people. My first real exposure to global business or anything of that sort and did that for three years. And I think if you're an entrepreneurial or if you have an entrepreneurial bent, practicing corporate law is not ever going to be a good fit. I mean, perhaps in some very isolated instances it could be, but for me, it was not going to be a good fit. I liked the people. I just, I was more of a risk taker. Mm -hmm. And so in March, 2006, uh, left with a laptop, started Triumph. We like, you know, as, as I know you guys are building, um, we started working in the area of distress multifamily mm -hmm. and that was on the end of a crisis or leading into a crisis that was about to unfold that we had no idea the depths at which it would go through, which was the great financial crisis, 07 to 09. Mm -hmm. And so we bought, had some success buying multifamily and uh, assets. And then during the crisis, I just, I, I suppose, I remembered what my dad had done in investing in this tiny bank uh, in the previous SNL crisis. And so I went to my mentors and said, look, this multifamily business is good, but there's lots of people doing it. Nobody's buying banks right now. Um, you know, there's everybody's fleeing banks. And what if we bought a bank? And I think had either of them been bankers, they would have shot the idea down on the spot because a banker would have appreciated the audacity of what you were saying in that moment. I mean, you can you get a uh, you get an um, a lender and someone to do inspections. You can buy a multifamily property, mm -hmm. right? It's not. I mean, there's diligence and you got to be smart, but it's not rocket science. And there's certainly not a lot of regulatory tape around right. it. When you sit down to buy a bank. Um, just in, until you've done it, you have no idea the level of um, regulatory muck that you have to go through and it quite, and some appropriate questions too that you have to answer to get there. So did that November 5th, 2010, raised capital. Again, as you referenced, there's another podcast that goes through this in detail, but that's how um, really my first day to ever work in a bank, I was the CEO of a bank and it's the most backwards way into banking <laughs> that you could imagine. That's awesome. That's awesome. Cole, do you want to jump into maybe yeah, some yeah. of your kind of specific banking questions or, or any follow-ups on just generally the, the 30,000 foot view? Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is you said nobody wanted to buy a bank in 08. Um, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, if you, if, if you look back today, uh, you know, a bank in 08, you know, credit spreads were, were, uh, were pretty wide, you know, started to get pretty wide. And then, you know, it was essentially interest rates went to zero. So a bank was the perfect thing to buy at that time. But, you know, looking back, why did no one want to buy a bank at that time? You didn't know where the bottom was. Uh, it would be one thing if you were starting a bank from scratch where you had, if you, if you think about the left-hand side of the balance sheet of a bank, and remember banks are the opposite of everyone else. So the, the, the asset side of a balance sheet of a bank is gonna be its loans, its securities, its premises, and its cash. And so if you have a bank that had been making loans from 2000 through 2007, you were having to make assumptions about the quality of underwriting because whatever rate at which or underwriting assumptions and exit cap rate at, 
which you had underwritten it alone in 2005 was not going to be true in 2008, especially after September of 08 when Lehman failed. And therefore to buy a bank, which is already a leveraged vehicle, you needed to understand the quality of the assets. And to do that took time and Every, and the world was a scary place for a lot of people. So that capital, there was just wasn't a lot of capital flowing into banks as a result of that fear of charge offs and provision expense tied to loans underwritten in a very different you know, time period and a different, much more um, risk tolerant credit yeah. cycle. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And when you say, it's a leveraged vehicle, you know, I, I, you talked about on the Fort podcast, y'all raised 45 million to go, you know, buy TVK or what it was it called TVK at it that was time? Equity Bank. Equity Bank. At the time. So y'all raised 45 million. Did y'all take on any debt in that? Or just frankly, I don't know how banks work. You, are most of them, do most of them take on a lot of leverage or how does that work? Yeah. So great question. And it is something that I think people, um, unless you live and follow the industry, you, you wouldn't know. So most banks, probably more than 90% are owned by a holding company. And so the parent for us is Triumph Bank Corp Inc., which is traded on the NASDAQ ticker symbol TBK. Um, that will actually be changing to TFIN. Oh. Uh, in December 1st. first. Tri yeah. <laughs> that is breaking news. It's not part of the blackout. Yeah. So we're good to talk about it. So Triumph, we will change it to Triumph Financial Inc., which just is more representative of what we do today than just limiting it to what people would conceive traditionally of a bank. So in the holding company, you can have debt and you can have equity. Right. And you downstream that capital from the holding company into the bank. And so if you think just the most simplistic way to think about how a bank works is for every dollar of assets in a bank, 10 percent of it or 10 cents of it is supported by equity or capital would be a better way to say it. The other 90 cents is deposits or borrowings. So banks, by their very nature, are 10 times leveraged yeah. just by the structure itself. So then if you were to borrow at the holding company and downstream capital into the bank, yes, it's treated as regulatory capital at the bank level, but regulators look at a thing called a double leverage ratio, which is you've already eight to 10 times levered in the bank. If you're also leveraged at the holding company, you're having to make assumptions that the bank's gonna be profitable enough that it can dividend out a portion of its earnings to service the debt at the holding company. In the old days, you could do that. In the great financial crisis and since then, they have really clamped down, and probably appropriately so, on leverage at the holding company because you're already leveraged just by the very nature of the structure of the bank. And was that, you know, in 08 was obviously, I mean, subprime mortgages were a big piece, but did most, did a lot of banks fail because they were too leveraged? Yeah, what it ended up creating actually was a lot of zombie banks. So banks had taken out subordinated debt at the holding company level and then downstream that capital in, you know, from the mid nineties on and or in the great financial crisis, they took on TARP, which was the troubled asset relief program. They they took TARP preferred 
I think it was structured as preferred equity. I don't totally remember, but it was more or less debt at the holding company level. And then it was downstreamed into the bank. Well, at the bank level, you're regulated by whoever your chartering institution is, if whether it's state or if you're a federal bank, that's the OCC and the FDIC. And the FDIC is the insurance policy. They, If a bank were to fail, they're the ones on the hook to pay all depositors back up to 250000 So they have a vested interest in making sure that the bank is in a safe and sound condition. And so if you're struggling to generate profitability in the bank itself because you're taking charge-offs on loans, then you're not going to be in a position to dividend capital up to the holding company in order to service the debt. And if you can't service the debt at the holding company, think about as in an apartment deal. If you can't service the debt, your lender has a certain series of options that they can use to either foreclose on the asset, which is a very difficult thing to do in banking, but it just created these zombie institutions that weren't able to service debt at the holding company, so the equity was getting crammed down every quarter. Uh, When you, so to, to, to wind back a little bit, you guys talked about on the Fork Podcast, y'all raised 45 million of equity. How, how, how did y'all determine, you know, how much equity was needed and what all did that go towards? It was dictated to us by the regulators. Okay. Uh, so I think we bought the bank for $13 million, which was roughly 25 cents on the dollar of its stated equity on its balance sheet. But you knew there were loan losses in there that had not yet been realized. And then the regulators, as part of approving the business plan, required us to inject additional capital into the bank in order to make sure that after those losses were realized and recognized that there was enough capital that we wouldn't be back in a troubled situation. So it wasn't like we set off to raise 45 million. In fact, that would have sounded incredibly daunting at the time. (laughs) I think my original thought was we would be looking at a $20 million capital raise, but the regulators continued to raise that bar. Um, so we just had to scramble until we got to the finish line. <laughs> I know the scramble. I know <laughs> yeah. the feeling. Yeah, we, <laughs> yes, we do. We do. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so to kind of get into a few more questions and then, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the, the soft skills behind, you know, you building triumph, but, um, I think Trump is, is, as you've mentioned, uh, is a bit of anomaly just because, you know, 45% of y- y'all's revenues come from the factoring business, um, which is a very interesting business. But for a traditional bank, you know, how does, how does a traditional bank grow its revenues? Um, and, you know, is it, is it really just, hey, grow my, grow my balance sheet from loans, deposits, um, you know, hire more bankers or like, how, how does a traditional bank grow? Yeah. So banking, and I, I'm not the first person to say this, banking has a significant flywheel effect in that for every dollar of profit after tax that you generate, if you leave it in the bank, that supports another $10 of assets. And there are very few businesses that can create that kind of structural equity leverage over a long period of time. And so banking is a great get rich slow plan. Like there there are banks, a couple of privately held banks that have a billion dollars plus in capital and started much smaller, but they just compounded it over time. As to how you get that incremental dollar of profitability, 
The first thing to know, let's just start with the right-hand side of the balance sheet. The right-hand side of a bank balance sheet is going to be borrowings and deposits, right? That's the, Those are the liabilities of the bank. And of course, deposits are your checking account, your operating account, CD, savings, money market. You can grow deposits when you have a bank charter as fast as you want to grow them, but you can't grow quality deposits as fast as you want to grow them. So, and we're seeing this now with a rising interest rate environment is liquidity is actually difficult. It's become a, a problem for banks, which historically never was. Now you can generate, you can get deposits because people will always put money with an FDIC insured institution up to $250,000 because they know that it's essentially got the full faith and credit of the U.S. government standing behind it. So what you need to do is grow quality deposits, which is relational deposits, people who keep their money with you, not because you pay the highest rate, but because you hopefully provide the best service. And that creates what we call deposit beta, which when rates move, we don't move deposit, what we pay on deposits up at a lockstep pace. And so you kind of anchor your funds, cost of funds closer to zero. On the left-hand side of the balance sheet, anybody can make loans. Difficulty is making profitable loans over through the cycle. So you can hire more bankers, you can buy participations, you can buy securities, municipal bonds, rated securities. I mean, there's you can put many things on the asset side of a balance sheet for a bank. What you have to do over the long term is create operational leverage. And by that, I mean, you have to be able to have a your revenues go up faster than your expenses, which sounds simplistic. But if, if you think about most banks, roughly 60 to 65% of every dollar of expenses in people. That's, I mean, that's what banks, is, I mean, that's just, it's a people business. So the way you have to structure it is you have to get efficient enough where you can grow assets faster than you grow the people to service those assets. And that either means you need to get really good at a niche like we are in transportation, or you just get to a, a very large scale. And how people look at banks to, to decide whether or not the bank is operating efficient efficiently, they talk about an efficiency ratio, which is essentially your non-interest expense as a percentage of every dollar of revenue. And so well-run banks who are, who are very efficient are going to have 30 to 40% efficiency ratios, which means 60 to 70 cents of every dollar of revenue um, is, is gross profit and not chewed up with the non-interest expense. Now you got interest expense and other things that go into that. Ours is much higher because we have a niche business that generates much higher margins, so we still get to the same ROE. But the to cap off the answer to your question, you've got to create operational leverage, you've got to fund the balance sheet, and you got to make good loans. That's Those yeah, are the tenets that's of simple. banking. That's simple. You, you mentioned in there that liquidity is a bit more of an issue right now with you know interest rates rising. Would you say that, you know, now is an opportunistic time to go buy a bank or, you know, how would you look at that market right now? Like if Coop and I were to say, let's go buy a bank right now, yeah. what would you, what would you tell us? Um, well, uh, I would tell you pack a lunch. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's not a short process. Uh, so if you go back to the mid 1980s, there were 14,000 banks in the United States. Today it's 5,500. 
my guess is by the end of your careers, we'll be down to 1,500. Really? Wow. And that may not be what people want to hear. That may not even be what regulators like. But the fact of the matter is when we allowed interstate branching and with the shift to digital experience, Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, they can be anywhere and everywhere. They're not even constrained by the... Um, by their branch footprint. Mm -hmm. If I were to walk into, I, when I go down to speak at Baylor and, you know, a class of 200 people and ask how many of you are at the big four, which would, you know, would be Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, Citibank, 85% of the room is going to raise their hand. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it very difficult then if you're a vanilla small bank, if, if you're the only bank in town, you're going to continue to win. But if you're in a non-growing community, like there's several communities like this in the Midwest and you're one of four banks, you just, you can't earn your cost of capital. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we'll ever get to where Canada is, which Canada only has four banks in Whoa. the whole country, <laughs> but we're on the downward trajectory. So it would be a contrarian move if you were gonna do it, but I would highly recommend that you have a, something that is your secret sauce because just owning a bank in Dallas, you're going to struggle to compete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think the biggest opportunity is in, in banking right now? Well, I, I would say we're, for the first time in a long time, money's worth something. And that's really compelling. I mean, creds, of, you know, spreads have, have widened out. We, we haven't done much commercial real estate lending in the last three or four years because everyone else was so aggressive. So good news for us now is a lot of those banks are full and they're already seeing compression because they took intermediate term debt and rates have moved against them. And so it's given us an opportunity to step in with sponsors that we really like and price debt that hits our internal yield hurdles. And our, our hurdles are higher than most because our ROE is higher. We, we, we hold to a higher standard. So that's a good thing. Now, the bad thing is if as a result of Fed policy and groupthink and all the external factors that you can't predict, if the economy materially slows, well, then that's not good for banking. So it's somewhere in between a rising interest rate environment, a gently rising interest rate environment is generally good for banks. Yeah. You, you talked a little bit about your you know, your return on equity, how it's higher than, than most, or you have higher standard. Um, you guys, from what I could tell, you know, you guys have a, a net income of over a hundred million a year, you know, and you retain a good amount of earnings. Um, and you have a, you know, a high standard for return on equity. Um, how do you guys think about for your shareholders? Um, you know, what are we going to do with that? equity that we retain? How are we going to use this? Are we going to make distributions? Are we going to invest back into the business? You know, how do, how do you guys think about it? Yeah. Well, once you become a public company, if you ever start paying a dividend, you can't stop because <laughs> the investor base who follows you, you will start to add dividend focused investors and they're going to focus on whether the dividend ever gets cut. If, for example, two years ago, I think Exxon borrowed to maintain their dividend at the level it had been, which to me seems counterintuitive, but that's what they felt like the investors required. So we are a growth company. We are a 
technology focused company and and therefore we have never paid a dividend we have bought back shares and we would continue to buy back shares which has if you think about it is a more tax efficient way to return capital to investors because if i divid if i pay you a dividend you pay income tax on the dividend however if i buy back the shares therefore there's less shares in the pie and the price of your shares appreciate because of that that's a non-taxable event you would pay capital gains when you sell the stock eventually on whatever your gain is over your basis. So we retain, and I bet inception to date, we've probably generated on an after-tax basis, which is kind of shocking for me, probably north of, or somewhere approaching 400 million in net income. Um, and we have reinvested that significantly in the business. We've bought back shares, as I mentioned. Um, right now, the primary thing we're investing in is Triant Pay, which I'm sure we'll get into. We've invested, if you look at acquisitions plus just organic expenses, we've invested almost 200 million into that business, which is a really significant investment. The beautiful thing is we're profitable enough in the rest of the business that we're able to make that investment without raising outside equity and therefore diluting our own shareholders. I love it. That's I think that's really smart. And uh, you know, it's a lot of that's kind of the the value investing Warren Buffett way, where uh, you know, I read something he said he made one distribution one time in his company and uh he must have been in the bathroom whenever he, <laughs> <laughs> whenever they made it. So um, I think that's, that's really smart. So, um, you know, to, I guess let's get into a little bit of triumph pay and, and, you know, how that works. I think one of the things that I really, you know, admire about you from afar is just, you guys have really locked in and, and found your niche, right. And you've focused. And that's one of the things that, you know, our mentors have, have often told us is just focus, right. Pick one thing and just grind in it and, and be the best in it. Um, is that, you know, is, is, is Triumph Pay and, and factoring and all that, is that something you set out to do? Or, you know, how do you think about focusing in your business there? It was not something we set out to do. I wasn't even aware of it. Uh, the reason we're in it's as much providential as it is any um, intelligence from me or the, or the team around it. What we have, and, and it's evolved over time. I just, when you all underwrite a multifamily deal, there's one outcome I can guarantee you that won't happen. And that's whatever's in your model. <laughs> now the model is helpful and it's yes. directional, but it's not precise. And so people, you know, build these, I've seen some of the most complicated Excel spreadsheet models and the guys I, who I know who've done the best, it's on a napkin, right? It's, it's, they look at it from, you know, a, an ROA basis and leverage is great and all these things, but it's just keep it simple. That's what you took out to Midland too. When right, you right. Money. <laughs> yeah. Keep it very simple. Very simple. Um, so the, it's evolved into, we believe, um, and I think, and I think objectively we could verify it, that we are the best in the world at paying truckers. Mm. We pay more truckers than anyone, um, at least in the United States of America. 
that was not on my radar. I think there is, if, if I can lay a business lesson in here, curiosity is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think for a young people who would be following in your footsteps, you have to balance being curious about opportunity with chasing the next thing. Mm-hmm. Because going back to what you just said, your mentors have suggested be the best in the world at something. Well, in order to figure out, or the best in your market, the best in your competition set, in order to figure out what that is, uh, you either need to come in with, you know, how I see most people do it is they've done something for 20 years working for someone else, and then they're going to go off on their own and they're going to use the same playbook and tweak a few things. And, and people have built, done that very well. Some of my mentors have done that for us. I think I just naturally am more inclined to be curious about opportunity. And this one came to us. It made sense. And we had a little bit of success. I think had we not had success out of the gates, it would have been difficult to keep investing. Um, and the more we invested, the more success we had. And so it's, it was a journey of a thousand small steps. And I would have never envisioned what we do now, even when we bought the bank, even when we went public, <laughs> it's changed. And that's a difficult thing to do to pivot a publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And, and, um, did you get much, did you get much pushback from the board or, you know, y'all's investors on, on pivoting in that direction? The original, the board and the original investors no. I mean, those, those people were betting on the, the people around the deal. They didn't, I mean, I would say most of our original investors didn't even read the prospectus. I mean, some (laughs) did, but they're just the quality of the people associated with it. And, and that did not include me. I was the young guy with the idea. I had quality mentors who opened doors that I never could have opened and had credibility that I still don't have. So I was the recipient of people willing to invest in me because of other people. And I will never, um, I hope I never lose sight of that and forget or take that for granted because that was an opportunity that was afforded to me. Um, As far as pivoting as a publicly traded company, sure. I mean, public investors like predictability. And so the beautiful thing is they can sell your shares if they don't like where you're going. Uh, And for every share that's sold, somebody had to buy it. So there's somebody on the other side of the trade who believes in what you're doing. But it is difficult with the with the Wall Street is built for incremental predictive growth. And when you pivot the, the, the balance sheet or you pivot the strategy more than the balance sheet, uh, you have to be ready to go out and articulate over and over again the why, the what, the how. And you tell it enough times and you you can eventually, assuming that all the metrics are working, you can get there. Sure. Why did you guys choose to go public? Um, it was in, what what year was that again? 2014. 2014. Why did you guys go public? Because banks eat capital when they're growing. Uh, going back to what we said earlier, that 10% of every bank asset stack or the liability stack is going to is going to be in the form of equity. If we were an insurance broker or a real estate broker, you don't really have to hold a lot of capital because you don't take any long-term risk. I mean, it's a service business. You get paid when the transaction closes. 
If on the other hand, you're a bank where you're taking balance sheet risk or warehousing assets on your balance sheet at hopefully a profitable level, then you have to make sure you have enough capital to support that. Most banks, if you're growing 20% a year, in order to not raise capital, that means you would have to be generating ROEs, net income ROE, you know, of above 20% and retain all that. Well, that's a very difficult thing to do. So we needed capital to grow from a 200 million or $300 million bank into a bank that had the operational leverage going back to talking about that, that to do the things we needed to do to be successful. That makes sense. And when you guys initially pitched the investment idea to buy the bank, you know, we coming from real estate, multifamily, we're always pitching our investors. What's the exit? You know, we hold for five years exit at, you know, such and such. Were you pitching an exit? Was the exit an IPO? How did, how did you it was not an IPO. (laughs) I'm sure that might've come up, but that was not the plan. I, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I think probably if you were to synthesize hundreds of conversations, because there were hundreds of conversations to get to the 45 people who actually invested, it was something along the lines of, we're in a long-term consolidation of this industry, whether it's the money center banks, the super regionals, the regionals, whomever it is, if we can buy this cheaply, which everything was on sale, we can fix it, clean it up, grow it, there is going to be somebody that wants to buy our, you know, buy the footprint that we've established. Um, that is as probably as far as we got. I don't <laughs> and is that the typical, if somebody's, if, if me and Cole are going out to start pitching, hey, we're going to buy a bank, what is the typical, you know, promise or pitch? It's changed because of the regulatory scrutiny on, uh, on, consolidation like the regulators don't like the fact that and I don't remember what the total is but somewhere like 30 to 40 percent of all deposits are held in the four largest institutions well how that happened was if you go back to the 80s and 90s Bank of America Chase they were just buying all these community banks and so the pitch in those days was we'll start a bank we'll grow it to a couple hundred million we'll sell it for three times tangible book to Chase Wells Fargo and then wash, rinse, and repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a little more, it's a little different. Anytime you're raising capital for a bank, you have to have the discussion about the IPO as a potential liquidity event. But there is no natural acquirer, especially right now in this regulatory environment. And that pendulum swings. Mm-hmm. You know, we go from being where capitalism trumps all, which I don't think is great, to populism trumps all, and I don't think that's great either. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, So transactions are very difficult to do right now. Uh, They take a long time. So if someone's investing in a bank now, they're assuming that the market's gonna change in the next three to five years, which it probably will, or they're assuming that there's an IPO exit down the road. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for, for Cole and I, I think one of the biggest challenges has been being young, raising capital, not having an exit yet. You know, we're a year and a half in and own 20 properties, but we haven't sold anything. We've made some distributions. Um, it sounds like, you know, from the fort that you had 30 days and you you went to bat. And um, 
how'd you deal with, or what would be your advice to young guys going to raise capital for anything when, you know, either you're on a shot clock and, or just in general, what was some best practices you had and how'd you deal with the no's? How'd you get to the people that said yes? Um, and, and what was your just general, like how, how'd you, how'd you do all that? Yeah. Well, and, and just to clean up the, the 30 day comment, you, you need to understand that for a year and a half to two years, we'd been talking to these people right. about the right. concept. It was just 30 days to say now. To, yeah, to, yeah, to go. Um, so number one, there is no replacement for persistence. I saw a lot of people start down this path to buy a bank and gave up either because the third round of regulatory questions or the difficulty capital raising. Um, you got to be desperate enough to be persistent, and that can't be taught. Mm. I, I can't, you know, if you've got a trust fund or you've got a job to fall back <laughs> on, you're not going to be desperate enough to be persistent. And and for me, I was, you know, the, the stakes were real, mm -hmm. and I would go anywhere, meet with anyone, and you could call my baby ugly, and I'd just shake it <laughs> off and move to the next one. And that happened more often than not, and rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, people like you're 28, 29, 30 years old, you never even worked in a bank. Do you even understand? And and those were those were fair questions. Mm -hmm. So number one, persistence. Number two, and I said this earlier, and I'll say it again, without the good housekeeping seal of approval of some mentors who had credibility, I would have never gotten there. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. I couldn't just stand in a room and dazzle smart, wealthy people. Like mm -hmm. that's that's. Um, I sympathize with that. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Somebody, I'm sure there are people who can. I right, could not. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I could tell the story and, yeah. and enough to be credible. But a lot of the people who invested in our deal invested because of other people. Right. In there. And some of the biggest investors were people who'd done multifamily deals with us, which we had exited and given them a multiple. Mm -hmm. So that helped. Um, and then the third thing is, and, and I think... I think I, I would preach this to myself, but I would especially preach it to the 30 year old me is don't have all the answers because the further you go, the more you're going to realize you don't understand. Mm -hmm. It's, it, I think there's a huge human temptation when you're raising capital or in any scenario where you're trying to impress people to feel like you've got all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that you build the most important form of capital. Like you guys want to go raise capital, do an apartment deal. I want to raise capital to buy a bank. Neither of those is going to happen without relational capital, mm -hmm. which is the most valuable of all. And you only build relational capital when someone trusts you. And for me, my trust level goes up when someone has the character and the competency to say, look, um, that's a great question. There could be downside to this. And or I will come back to you on it, or that is a known risk in this sort of fair way of opportunity. I would encourage young people to resist the urge to, it's it's inconceivable that this won't work out, mm -hmm. and I've planned for every contingency. You haven't. Right. You haven't lived long enough is, is, the, is what that teaches people. So just the humility to mm -hmm. be, say, look, this is a good idea. We've structured it the best we can. Um, but there is downside risk. Mm -hmm. I love that. We, we, that's one of the things my dad has built into me more than anything, especially coming. I mean, you know that, and we've talked about before, my background is not even anywhere in the realm of business in general. And I'm, I'm only 26 and life changes constantly, but 
biblical studies degree from a Baptist university and worked for a church for two years out of college. So getting into this, and it was very much trial by fire. Most of our initial introductions were, you know, because part of why Cole had me jump on with him is the relationships we had in Dallas. And so he was like, just get me in the room. And so we'd get in the room and I would say, hello, so-and-so. I'm now doing multifamily real estate. Yeah. This is Cole. He can tell you all about it. And so <laughs> I think what my, the, the phrase my dad used, which you just taught on with the word humility is intellectual integrity and just being willing to say, I, I don't know. And, um, that's, that's definitely served us well. And, and something we, we also have had to make some calls back and said, Hey, we may have overpromised there and not mm-hmm. sure if that's exactly what we're going to execute on. So jumping into, I think a little more soft skills. I mean, one of my first exposure to Triumph was, um, and we'll try to wrap up here in the next, you know, few minutes, but my first exposure to Triumph was, um, I think a junior in high school. My dad came up to speak at a, maybe a lunch over a lunch break and something from then until now, I mean, even as a junior got to go into y'all swag closet and pick out a, a hunting shirt that I still wear. And, uh, I'm impressed you still fit in it. I that's, still haven't changed much. Yeah, that's good. I, I was promised over and over by my dad and coaches. I'd be six, six and play D one basketball. And I didn't, I stopped, <laughs> stopped growing. But, um, how have you, I mean, just when you were starting, how did you think about where you wanted, not the bank to be, but the culture to be? Yeah. Um, so a lot of my thinking was because I really didn't work at another company. I worked at a law firm, which a professional services firm shares some characteristics of a company, but it's not the same. Uh, so a lot of my thinking was shaped by my mentor, which, uh, I mean, I've had a, a few of them, but Carlos Sepulveda, especially who led interstate batteries. So everything and, and just pulling on that thread for a second, I'm not in banking because I'm passionate about banking, mm-hmm. like newsflash. And Carlos Pulveda wasn't in batteries because he was passionate about batteries. We each did what we did, or I'm doing what I do because we like winning. Mm-hmm. Now, you can win at all costs, which is not how we think, or you can win in a way that you build a dynasty. I mean, think about teams who were put together to make a championship run and then blew apart, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody could tolerate each other for just long enough to get to this one goal and then everyone was gonna pursue their own individual best interest versus a dynasty is someone who every year for the most part adds components to continue to make you better. And so the purpose of a team, as Carlos taught me a long time ago, and I think I intuitively knew it, I just didn't have as good of words to express it, is to mitigate the weaknesses and accentuate the strengths of the individual members. Mm. That's how any team wins, anywhere, anytime, any place. So as we thought about building Triumph, and I, I, whether it was the responsibility of raising $45 million or the responsibility that 40 people um, were on our payroll, and I was now accountable to them and to my investors And if there are 40 people on your payroll, that probably means there's 100 people who are depending on you because many of them have dependents. Mm -hmm. And that that responsibility, and I'm pretty immune to, like, I like stress, I like risk, I'm pretty immune to that. Um, But I think there were times where that really weighed on me. And not that I needed to be the savior, uh, that, that's the wrong way to think about it. I think the way to think about it um, 
was you, anytime someone is working at a company you are leading, and let me be clear, nobody works for me. We all work for Triumph. Mm. We just have different roles. Um, so the, when, when you're in that position, you are a steward of a significant amount of that person's time. Just like if you own a multifamily asset, you're a those tenants live there. Mm -hmm. And so you have Absolutely. to think about the competition between cutting expenses and making sure you give them a place to live right. that is what you would want if mm -hmm. you were in their position. So I don't know that there was any defining moment when we sat down and said, our culture will be this or our culture will be that. Instead, what I've seen, at least, and I, I speak from a very limited historical perspective because I've only worked here. I've not been a consultant in a bunch of businesses, but I do believe like attracts like. And so if you model for people that you genuinely care for them, that servant leadership is not something you put on a wall, but you're willing to actually put in practice when mm -hmm. things go sideways. And you do that long enough and the very important thing you don't tolerate mediocrity a lot of people get the first two right and then mm -hmm. they want to be the grandfather that everybody likes and so they just overlook mediocrity you can't do that mm -hmm. you cannot do that because that kill that kills culture it hurts your high performers it hurts the whole team frankly i think it's not serving the person who's mediocre well like yeah. they need to know the yeah. truth so if you can do kind of push those elements into the souffle you're gonna end up attracting people who wanna do excellent, who are willing to prioritize the success of the team over the individual, and who are willing to follow you when you call a pivot because they've seen you model it. Yeah. Um, and we haven't done it perfectly, but I do think uh, it's, it's something that sets us apart from many other institutions. Yeah, so when you came, uh, I think I have these numbers right, just from what you said and listened to the other pod, is when you acquired Equity Bank, you, you inherited essentially 40 employees mm -hmm. and you were 28 uh, at that time it would have been 32 okay 32 um, still old by your standards yeah <laughs> uh, might have four more kids by then yeah. um, uh, hopefully not that's that'd be too much but um, how do you think about entering into that and, and even on that note of can't can't tolerate mediocrity if you bought a bank that was in your eyes not doing great right um, how did you deal with caring for those people, leading while you're young and new to banking, but also not tolerating mediocrity? Yeah. So the when you walk into the doors of a bank or, or wherever, and you're leading as a young person, of the 40 people that worked for us at that time, 30 of them were older than me. And 39 of them had been more experienced in banking than me. So that... That is a recipe for failure if it's not handled well. And I think it's incredibly important if you're given the opportunity to lead at a young age to start with listening. I mean, my natural tendency, because I think just by nature, I didn't do anything to earn it. I'm pretty good at A squared plus B squared equals C squared to get what I want. But I think I've been changed. God you know, has changed me over time is instead of going in an A squared plus B squared equals C squared people with 30 years of banking experience, because obviously they were here and this bank was in trouble and all the reasons I could have made a compelling cross-examination of their lack of aptitude compared to my own. 
um, I walked in and said, help me understand what my blind spots are. Like I'm here, we raised the capital. I wanna be part of the solution. I don't, you know, the problems are in the past. And, and, and so I think, I believe that that was, if you were to talk to the people who were there in the early days, that was surprising to them mm -hmm. that I was willing to come in and be a student about and acknowledge the intellectual integrity that I don't know all about banking. I, I knew how to put a deal together, but I didn't know how to run a bank. I mean, who am I kidding? Mm -hmm. So I think that would be the first thing. Um, you know, what, what I say a lot of times to our team or when I get a chance to talk to young people is, there's two different types of authority. There's positional authority and moral authority. Positional authority is what you have if you're Putin, Bashar Assad. You know, I personally don't think many of their constituents like them. I think you could point to things going on in their countries that they can't really leave the palace grounds without being subject to an assassination attempt. So that's positional authority. You have the ability through the use of force to cause someone to do what you want them to do. And that exists in business. There are people who are tyrants and people stay with them because that's their livelihood. Mm -hmm. And so the positional authority is to order someone to do something. On the other hand, there's moral authority. And you can think about people like Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King Jr., lots of people who didn't maybe have a position as the way the world would have defined that they sit in a role or a title that gives them the ability to do something. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor from a small Southern state, mm -hmm. but he, the moral authority was around the message which resonated with people. And so if we can work on leadership so that we're building moral authority, you don't abrogate positional authority. It's still real. There has to be a hierarchy. No great business is a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. And mm -hmm. that's what triumph is. Mm -hmm. Now, I, as the benevolent dictator, answer to a board, right? So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not king and I don't pretend to be king and I don't own it all. But my job until, unless and until they're done with me is to be the benevolent dictator of this is what we're going to do. But what that means is I want to use that position to invest in people so that they're making decisions without me, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm very hands-off. That word might come across wrong. I'm just using it to paint a picture to right. you. That somebody has to have the calm. Somebody's gotta make the call. But if you invest in people long enough, well enough, they will follow you not because you have the calm, but because they trust you. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't matter whether you're 25 or 65. Mm -hmm. You earn that through behavior. Yeah, that is really good. I, I think one of the things that's been encouraging to watch is, and you actually posted about it on LinkedIn today, or maybe I saw it today on LinkedIn, of uh, the gentleman you just brought on and mm -hmm. just the how you were humbled at the different leaders across different industries who've left their uh, maybe bigger paying, maybe you know bigger corporations, jobs, to come and work with you and... and um, it seems like, and it's having known some of them, um, you've definitely built a culture of not being afraid of other, in my mind, lions or people who are excellent at what they do. Um, and you've continued to, to expand and grow that team with some, some really incredible leaders to lead alongside you. Um, how many of those original 40 are still with you 
Yeah, I don't know if you even know that uh, exactly. Yeah, that's, you're probably 10. Okay. Some have retired. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's probably five to 10. But, but on that, um, on what you just said, I think it shows insecurity in leadership if you're not willing to bring on someone who's better at something than you are. And, mm. and the further I go, I think the hallmark of my leadership now is talking less in board meetings and giving other people more airtime. Mm. That's because if not, we're a personality driven company and nobody should be working for or investing in a personality driven company because I'm a fallible person. I may not be here tomorrow. Um, so the, the most confident leaders and confidence is very different than arrogance or the what you put off. But if you're quietly confident in your role, your responsibility, who you are, then it's it's awesome to be able to say, hey, we've got so-and-so handling this. And frankly, they're going to do it better than me. And so I'm going to support them mm -hmm. and get them what they need. And, and that creates tremendous relational capital with that person. And what you don't realize, most people don't have the objectivity to see it, is the board already understands that. Any good board reads people. And if one person needs to dominate all the airtime, maybe there's a reason they're doing that versus investing in other people because they're insecure. Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, the last question I have, unless you have anything no. else following up on any of that, no. this is the kind of the classic end of podcast question, but what would you say to, not uh, somebody who's going into banking, but what would you say to the 25 to 30 year old out there that's looking to start something? What would be kind of your last word of advice after? I mean, there's a thousand gold nuggets on this, but anything sure. you haven't mentioned that was that's well, an anchor? The first thing is we've we've used some words on this podcast that if that people would consider religious. And so I just think it's it's intellectually honest to take that head on. Mm -hmm. Triumph is not a church. We are a for profit publicly traded bank. It doesn't matter what your worldview is, doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is, doesn't matter what what you do. If you can do your job with excellence, we have a place for you. Mm. Now, what is my responsibility as someone who believes that my ultimate accountability is not just to the shareholders, not just to the team members, but also ultimately to the God of the universe? It's, I think my responsibility, I think how Jesus would be leading this organization would be to say, all of you are welcome and you can scale to the highest pinnacle of our company as long as you Im you demonstrate servant leadership. But make no mistake that the idea of servant leadership wasn't something I dreamed up. It was a carpenter 2,000 years ago mm. who I happen to think um, I'm going to give an account to. And so I just want you to know that, free to talk about that, but be free. You know, that we're like I said, we're not a church, but I'm not ashamed to say that my own goal setting, how I think about serving you, how I think about long-term value creation is shaped by a biblical worldview and sound business practices. And I've shared that with thousands of employees. You know, we have 1,500 employees and you know, HR might say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you could say that. But I think it's actually freeing to people, mm -hmm. right? Be, everyone's welcome, mm -hmm. right? That's not a criteria. People who report directly to me have different worldviews. Great, awesome. I mean, my job is just, to make sure and what we do in this business is we create value for everyone we touch, for shareholders, for team members, for regulators, for customers. Um, and, and so to wrap that, to finish that up for young people, whether they have a biblical worldview or not, 
Um, if you want to win for the long term, your focus needs to be on creating value. And well, gosh, what does that mean? Well, value is so much more than just making a 25% IRR on, a, on an apartment deal that you were in 18 months, right? That might be the most valuable call, but perhaps the better way to do it if you were in, for example, the pathway of redevelopment is to make a lower internal rate of return and make a much higher multiple over a longer period of time. And so what I would just encourage anyone who's wanting to start something is figure out what your value proposition is. Mm -hmm. The one value proposition you can bring to anyone is servant leadership, serving others, caring for others, putting their needs above your own. I mean, humility does not mean being a doormat. It takes, mm -hmm. a, it means prioritizing or thinking through situations in a way that's not just personal dependent. Mm -hmm. If you get that right, and then you couple that with, you need aptitude. Like I, I think that there are, in you know, the last few years, there have been a bunch of people leave to start crypto startups, and some of those are gonna work out, but by and large, people should go work somewhere and learn the language of business and understand and see things through at least a mini cycle, if not a major one. Um, because you got to bring that aptitude to the equation. You can be the best of all those soft skills we just talked about, but if you don't have the hard skills of how the business works in a down cycle, then you're going to struggle to raise capital. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, especially if you're going solo, find someone who loves you enough to tell you the truth. Not what you want to hear, but to tell you the truth, because it is very easy, especially... Yeah, I, I tell young people, the corner office is far more dangerous than a cubicle ever will be. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in a cubicle, you don't labor under the illusion that, I mean, you're living in the real world. When you get to the corner office, you can isolate yourself from a lot of things. And you can start to tell a story to yourself and others about how you deserved it and how, you know, all of these things. If you make it to the corner office, you better find a person or a group of people who have the moral authority, going back to what we talked about, to speak into your life and tell you when you need to course correct, because inevitably you will need to. Mm -hmm. And if I had to do it all over again, those are the things that, that I would focus on. Yeah, that's a lot of gold right there. So um, we are right at, if not right, right over an hour, so we will land the plane there. But hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I, A, learned a ton on the front side and then um, was reminded of and, and encouraged on the back side. So hopefully you guys, you know, listen, re-listen, um, share it with friends. And um, if you found it helpful, we would really enjoy if you like and subscribed. So um, we will be back here in the future. But um, Aaron, thank you for joining us. And um, Again, just truly, really appreciate the time and all the, the insight. You're so. most welcome. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you all next time. <laughs>